Hello, and welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with AEI President Robert Doerr, and we'll be your new Banter co-hosts. Each week, we'll take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers about today's pressing policy issues. Thanks for tuning in. Today, we'll be talking with Hal Brands. He's a resident scholar here at AEI, where he studies U.S. foreign policy and defense strategy. Hal is also the Henry Kissinger Distinguished Professor of Global Affairs at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, and he's also a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. Dr. Brands previously worked as Special Assistant to the Secretary of Defense for Strategic Planning and lead writer for the National Defense Strategy Commission. He graduated from Yale University with a PhD, Master's, and Master's of Philosophy. He also received a BA in History and Political Science from Stanford University. Thanks for joining us today, Hal. Thank you for having me. So to start out, we just wanted to ask you really quickly, what's your story? How did you come to AEI and join us here? Sure. So I am a historian by trade. I grew up studying Cold War history, basically, but I always tried to infuse the study of history with an interest in in policy. That is to say that I think that history is fascinating in its own right, but that it tends to be a little bit sterile if it's not connected and exploited to gain leverage on current day policy debates. And so my interests have always kind of spanned the past and the present. And I came to D.C. a number of years ago to take a job at Johns Hopkins Vice, as as you mentioned, and noticed over time that a lot of the people that I respected and liked most in the business were migrating over to AEI to join what was already a really terrific foreign and defense policy team there. And so when the opportunity arose about a year and a half ago to make that transition myself, I, I happily did so. And I've been there working on a mixture of history, strategy, and foreign policy issues since then. So Hal, we're having this conversation at a time when we're about to have the transitional time. In the history of America, sometimes foreign adversaries or or foreign players have used that uncertainty during a transition to take advantage of us not paying attention or not being on our game in terms of keeping an eye on, on the world. Is there a particular area of the world or a particular country or a particular player in the geopolitical scene that you think that American foreign policy and defense leaders should be paying careful attention to as we go through whatever kind of transition we're going through during this political time? Sure. I I think there are a number of possibilities, actually. And I would just say that there have historically been two types of dangers that the United States confronts during presidential transitions. The first kind is the kind that that you mentioned, Robert, where a competitor or an adversary perceives the United States to be distracted with its own internal shift in power and tries to take advantage of that. The second is that the quality of U.S. policy sometimes drops during a transition simply because it's, it's difficult to get one team rotated out and another team rotated in, and sometimes things get lost along the way. One of the reasons the United States went ahead with the Bay of Pigs invasion in early 1961 under John Kennedy was that some of the doubts about that operation that I think Dwight Eisenhower had basically got dropped during the transition. If you look at our own period, you have to take into account that we are not only dealing with the potential of a presidential transition, there's also the potential that this transition could be particularly rocky because it's occurring in the middle of a pandemic that has also had the effect in some ways of distracting the United States. And so there are a variety of, of hotspots around the world 
where American officials would certainly want to be on guard for surprises. The Chinese, for instance, have a long pattern of trying to test the United States either during or immediately after presidential transitions. This was the case under George W. Bush in, in 2001. He faced a crisis related to the crash landing of an American surveillance plane on Hainan Island in April 2001. There were some incidents involving Chinese naval vessels after Barack Obama took power as well. And so given the heightened tensions between the United States and China, this would certainly be an area worth paying attention to. But the United States, what's really unique about our position today is that we're facing worsening threats in a variety of areas, whether that's from an advancing North Korean nuclear program or the danger of another flare-up in the relationship with Iran. And so one of the things I worry about for this transition is that there are just so many different areas in which American policymakers could confront an unwelcome surprise. That's very concerning. I mean, there there is so many places and there's so much uncertainty in our situation, given the transition and our preoccupation with the COVID. Maybe in one of the most dangerous times we've lived through, when I really think about it, are there other players in the world scene, Germany, France, India, that can help us? I think there are other players that can help us accomplish our aims on the international stage and maintain the degree of stability that we've become accustomed to. And you, you mentioned a number of them. So Japan has been playing a very constructive role from our perspective vis-a-vis China and the larger strategic situation in the Asia-Pacific over the last few years. Certainly, Germany, France, the United Kingdom are significant powers in their own right. And, and in fact, over the past few years, we've seen each of those countries try in its own way to compensate for periods of what they perceive to be either American inward-facingness or distraction or what have you. I think that the challenge that we always confront, though, is that while the efforts of all of America's allies can and do supplement America's own efforts, they they can't replace America's own efforts. And so they, they add tremendously to the amount of geopolitical influence and stability that the United States is, is able to muster. But absent American leadership, there tend to emerge collective action problems. It tends to become harder for middle powers like Japan or France or Germany to sort of fully take up the mantle that the United States has had over the past 75 years. So let me just follow up on one particular hotspot and potential crisis, and that is Taiwan. So there's been a lot of writing lately in the last couple of weeks about China's aggressiveness towards Taiwan. And, you know, we could wake up one day and find out that they've launched something at Taiwan. I mean, that could happen or could it not happen? Is Taiwan easily defensible and are the Taiwanese ready to defend their their country? So it's a complicated question. I think something could very well happen. The Chinese have always made clear that they reserve the right to use force against Taiwan in order to prevent it from increasing its separation from the mainland. In recent years, the government of of Xi Jinping has become more explicit in saying that they would like to see Taiwan returned to the control of the PRC sooner rather than later and that their patience with the status quo is, is diminishing. And so if you look at that momentum, if you look at the increased number of threats that PRC mouthpieces are making, if you look at the increased tempo of military exercises and overflights, for instance, it, it's certainly concerning. 
AEI's Dan Blumenthal has, has written persuasively, in my view, that the PRC is not getting ready to invade Taiwan right now, but is instead trying to create a political crisis in Taiwan to embarrass and perhaps destabilize the government of Tsai Ing-wen, who has been a pretty forceful proponent of, of Taiwanese sovereignty vis-a-vis the PRC. That, that said, you could easily get a scenario, I think it would most likely be three, five, seven years down the line, where the Chinese believe that the military balance of power in the Taiwan Strait is favorable enough that they might be able to bring Taiwan back under the control of the mainland by force. And so that gets to the question that, that you raised, Robert, which is, is Taiwan sensible? And I think the answer is, is yes. It's very difficult to carry out complex amphibious operations. After all, the People's Liberation Army would have to cross a significant body of, of water. It would have to conduct an opposed amphibious landing, probably supplemented by an airborne assault. All these things are, are very difficult. The challenge is twofold, I think. The first is whether the Taiwanese will make the investments and the military reforms that are necessary to make it a harder target. And the key here, as people like Mike Beckley, who's spending a year at AEI, recently wrote, is to invest in what are called anti-access area denial capabilities. Not, not big, fancy things like warships and fancy fighter jets, but mobile missiles, anti-ship missiles, sea mines, things that just make it harder for the Chinese to establish a lodgment on Taiwan, relatively cheap capabilities that can be fielded in large numbers. And if the Taiwanese do that, if they augment their military reserves, if they really start thinking about what it would take to make an invasion too costly for the PRC to undertake, then I think it is the island is defensible. It also requires the United States to change how it thinks about defense in the Western Pacific. A Taiwan scenario would be incredibly demanding for the United States. The United States would have to get there quickly to prevent the People's Liberation Army from coming ashore in numbers. And it would have to operate in an area where China has significant military capabilities of its own. And so that's going to require significant new investments of long-range strike and other capabilities by the United States, as well as some creative operational concepts for operating in very difficult environments. But if Taipei and Washington both do their share of the work, I think the island is very much defensible. So this brings up an opportunity for a three-part quiz for Phoebe. <laughs> uh, so when was the most successful amphibious invasion of a major country? How far was the distance from the invader to the country that was being invaded? And how far is the distance in comparison then to the distance from mainland China to Taiwan? Do you know that? I'll turn that one over to Hal. <laughs> so I guess it's appropriate that I'm a historian. I, th I think uh, you'd say the most successful amphibious invasion of history was the Allied invasion of, of Western Europe, of France, yes. in 1944. And if I'm recalling correctly, while the distance that had to be crossed varied a bit, it was probably close to 90 or 100 miles in, in some cases because the Allies chose to cross the English Channel, not at the narrowest point, which was also the most predictable point, but at a point where it was somewhat wider. There are areas in which the Taiwan Strait, I believe, is comparable in, in width to the distance that the Allies crossed in 1944. But I think there are a couple of, of differences. One, there are relatively few suitable beaches in Taiwan for an amphibious invasion. 
two, the, the Taiwan Strait tends to be a pretty choppy body of water, particularly at certain times of the year, which makes an amphibious assault more difficult. And the third is that, you know, we now live in an age of widespread precision strike capabilities, basically guided munitions that can target an assault craft, for instance, far more easily than was possible during World War II. And so that should give some confidence that the defenders, in this case, Taiwan, perhaps aided by the United States, would be more capable of resisting an amphibious assault than perhaps the Germans were vis-a-vis the Allies in 1944. Yeah, the shortest distance between England and France is something like 15 miles. Mm -hmm. It's very short. Hal's adding a little detail there that they actually took the longer route. Right. But 100 miles is a long way. Yeah. And you can see them coming from a ways off. (laughs) Right, Hal? Right? (laughs) Yeah. And so one of the big factors in a Taiwan scenario would be how much advanced warning does the United States have and does Taiwan have? And I think most folks assume that we would have a significant degree of advanced warning just because it, it takes time to build up an invasion force that would be used in a scenario like this. Now, there are certain things that the Chinese can do to get around this. They could, for instance, establish a regular rotation of sort of simulated invasions, exercises meant to simulate the preparations for an invasion. And so over time, those things come to be more normalized, and perhaps you miss the difference between practice and the real thing when it actually occurs. But still, given that it would require such a significant buildup, I think we would have some advance warning. So I've got a hot tip for you for a TV show. Have you seen Line of Separation, pal? I have not. Have you heard about it? I have not. I have not well, I'll tell you first. about it. So it's a German, it's two seasons. I've watched both seasons. And it concerns a town in, in Germany where the line between East and West Germany was drawn. And it was kind of a little Berlin. And it tells the story from 1945 to roughly 1970 of how this town and the people who fell on one side or the other lived during that circumstance. And it's really quite good. So I recommend that that's one thing. But the second thing is there was an interesting piece by one of our scholars about the 30-year anniversary of the reunification of Germany. And I just wanted to, since we're talking about things that are concerning and frightening and cause us tension, do you agree that the successful reunification of Germany is one of the great success stories of the last 50 years? I would go even a little bit further than that. I I would say that the peaceful reunification of Germany on Western terms, so with East Germany essentially incorporated into a democratic West Germany that was aligned with the United States and NATO, that must qualify as one of the greatest American foreign policy achievements of the post-World War II era. The division of of Germany, as you alluded to in your description of the show, was one of the fundamental issues of the Cold War. And it's East Germany's reincorporation into West Germany, aligned with NATO, fundamentally changed the balance of power in Europe. It basically ended the Cold War. And the fact that it was done peacefully, with with a degree of pressure exerted by the United States and its allies on a declining Soviet Union, but but nonetheless peacefully, was just a a masterful achievement of American and Western statecraft. And so absolutely, I think that verdict is warranted. And also the resourcefulness of the German people themselves and the leaders in in Western Germany and and just sort of working it out. I mean, don't you give them a little credit too, Hal? 
Oh, oh, of course, of course. <laughs> so the the in some ways the driving figure in, in reunification was the Chancellor of West Germany, Helmut Kohl, who who really perceived very early on after the Berlin Wall was opened in November 1989 that he had a chance to be the leader who brought the two Germanys back together and consistently pushed the process faster and faster over the year that followed. And, and so certainly primary credit must go to him and, and to the German people. What's interesting, though, is that in the immediate aftermath of the opening of the Berlin Wall, there was basically only one other country in the world besides West Germany that was in favor of a quick and rapid reunification of East and West Germany, and that was the United States. Yep. The Soviet Union was against it. Even American allies in NATO, like the British and the French, who had long historical memories, were against it. And so Certainly, it wouldn't have succeeded without the initiative of, of Cole and other Germans, but I don't think it would have succeeded without the support and guidance of the United States either. Now, I'd love to talk more about Germany on the world stage, given what's happened in the United States. So I guess I'll just have to, I can't resist, I got to ask one more question. Do you think they are ready to be a bigger player or are they already a big player and we just don't recognize it as much? They are already a big player, but I think they are still struggling to figure out how to exercise the power that they have accrued. And so Germany is obviously the leading actor within the European Union. It's one of the leading economies in the world. And where it does choose to exert leadership, it, it can be very influential. And so just to give one example, from 2014 onwards, it hasn't just been the United States, but also the European Union that has hit the Russians with some pretty tough sanctions resulting from Russian policy in Ukraine. And the thing that has held that sanctions regime together as much as anything else has, has been German initiative and German leadership. I think, you know, when Americans think about the role that Germany plays, there is also a degree of frustration because Germany has so underinvested in its military since the end of the Cold War that it would struggle to contribute in any meaningful way to, for instance, a NATO operation in the Baltic against Russia. Now, that said, there's also some frustration on, on the German side. They feel as though they have been unfairly singled out by the current administration and have been punished most recently by the decision to remove around 10,000 American troops from Germany and to deploy them elsewhere. And so, so it's a somewhat troubled relationship right now, but it's still a fundamental relationship to American foreign policy because it's been the U.S.-German partnership that has really been the cornerstone of stability in Europe since World War II. And I think it's, it's just as essential now in dealing with the challenges from Russia, also from China and from other actors. Now, you have a book coming out on the history of the Cold War, and we have a, a new significant adversary the United States does in China. What is the one thing that this current situation we're in is similar to the Cold War challenge? And then one thing that is clearly different, that the analogy doesn't work at all, that we have to think anew? Or... Sure. So let me, let me start with the areas in which the analogy doesn't really work. And the most obvious thing is simply that there are dimensions of the U.S.-China competition that really don't have an exact parallel or even a close parallel in the U.S.-Soviet competition during the Cold War. One of the main axes of U.S.-Chinese competition today, for instance, is to determine whether it will be an autocracy or a democracy that basically dominates the high ground of the 21st century economy 
and writes the technological rules of the road in the coming decade. That's a result of the fact that China has far more economic and technological dynamism than the Soviet Union did. And so when you look at that particular area of the competition, I don't think there's a meaningful analog in the Cold War. And there are others as well, but that one is the stands out. The argument I make, though, is that we should not necessarily think of the Cold War as something that was entirely unique. Yes, there were unique aspects of it, but at its core, it was simply one of many long protracted competitions between geopolitical rivals dating back to the 5th century BC, perhaps, with Athens and Sparta, or or moving forward to the great game between the United Kingdom and Russia, and then into the 20th century with the Cold War. And so, presumably, if we can learn things about geopolitical conflict and war from studying the Peloponnesian War, if we can learn things about the nature of of war from reading Clausewitz, who, who wrote in response to the Napoleonic Wars, then we ought to be able to learn something about the rhythms of long-term geopolitical competition by studying the Cold War. And so the project that you mentioned, which I've just completed a draft of, is meant to go through the Cold War and and try to identify some of the more timeless dynamics of that struggle. And one of them is that it may just be a long twilight struggle, that you just have to gird yourself for a protracted competition that you want to try to keep peaceful, but it's not going to happen overnight. That's right. And I think you know, one of the things that is relevant from the Cold War is the realization that American policymakers came to relatively early on, which, which emphasized the idea that competition was actually a middle ground between unacceptable extremes. The unacceptable extreme on one side being diplomatic appeasement of the sort that had been tried during the 1930s, and the unacceptable extreme on the other side being an early recourse to military action, essentially preventive war to deal with the Soviet Union. And competition with the Soviets, it promised to be long and frustrating and costly and dangerous. And all those things made it look bad. But when you compared it to the obvious alternative, those two unacceptable extremes, it started to look better. And so that's, I think, the general mindset that the United States is going to need in the coming decades. Yes, competition with China will be tense. It will be difficult. It will be dangerous at times, but it is better than a recourse to hasty measures such as outright confrontation, but also to simply yielding American influence. Now, I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you a question that I get asked occasionally, and I never know quite how to answer it. And so this is kind of a tough question for you, Hal, because maybe you do have a way to answer it and you can show me the way. But Phoebe, you may not know this, but Hal's father is a quite well-known historian, H.W. Brandt. And I just wondered, how do you relate yourself to his work? Is it competitive in the Brands family there in, when you're writing your history? Or do you agree on your general attitude toward history? Or do you disagree? I'm just curious about that. You know, we, we tend to work on somewhat different subjects within the broader realm of, of history. And so my dad writes a lot of political biographies, for instance, whereas I work more on the intersection of history and traditional foreign policy concerns. And so The work doesn't intersect that directly, although certainly my dad's work influenced me growing up. When people ask me why I ended up (laughs) becoming a historian, my my answer is that, you know, that's what was on the bookshelf. Um, And it's certainly always been helpful to to have my dad as someone I can bounce ideas off of and get him to react to things. And so it's certainly been helpful for me, even though 
like a lot of people, I have trouble keeping up with all the stuff that he writes because he seems to have a book out about every 20 minutes. He's very prolific. That's true. But so are you, Hal. As often as your Bloomberg column. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> so I've been thinking a lot about history these days, Hal, because I'm reading that there's a new biography about JFK that's just come out. And it's a very thorough. It's not popular. It's not, you know, hagiographic. It's a thorough biography. And I've read the young President Kennedy, John F. Kennedy, was a world traveler. He, he saw the world. He'd seen more of the world by the time he was 22 than, than I'll ever see. And he saw it in big scenes, in crucial times. You know, he's in Germany. He was in France. He was in the United Kingdom. And I think he was there the day when they had the debate about Norway, the Norway debacle, when Chamberlain really, it was the end of the line for Chamberlain. And I'm bringing this up because I'm wondering whether you're thinking about the lines that were uttered at the end of that debate, I think by Lloyd George. Do you think that some people are going to be saying those words during this period between the election and the inauguration? Well, I certainly hope not. I mean, I think the debate that you're referring to basically ends when Cromwell is invoked and sort of dissolving the long parliament where someone tells Chamberlain that he's been sitting here for too long and it's time time to leave. And that, as you said, was essentially the end of the road for him. You know, there have certainly been some pernicious aspects of American foreign policy over the past few years that have worried me with respect to our ability to compete with countries like China and Russia. That said, I still think the United States has some undervalued long-term strength in these competitions. I think our democratic system is a source of of great strength because it helps to harness the dynamism of our nation, and it provides us with course correction mechanisms when we need them. The United States still has what I consider to be the most dynamic economy in the world, which is capable of, of incredible feats of prosperity and productivity. And perhaps most important, the United States doesn't simply have its own advantages. It has all the advantages that come with being the leader of a coalition of like-minded states around the world. The United States has over three dozen treaty allies and about 35 more quasi-allies and and regions all over the place. And so if the United States can find a way of harnessing those strengths and and not dissipating them, I think we'll be well-prepared for whatever challenges come at us in the coming years. That's encouraging. Hal, I was curious to ask you, I mean, President Trump has embraced more isolationist policies, alliances have been weakened. To what extent do you think that that shift was kind of representative of the way that Americans were feeling about foreign policy? And do you think that that's changed over the course of the past four years? I think there has always been a degree of discomfort in the American body politic with the truly extraordinary commitments that the United States took on after World War II and has in many ways maintained and even expanded to this day. It's, it's not normal, after all, for a country to give itself the responsibility of defending other countries that may be located half a world away. That's actually quite extraordinary in historical perspective. And so I think Americans have often wondered whether maintaining, whether bearing the burdens of leadership of this international system, whether those burdens be economic, military, or otherwise, is indeed worth it. And so I think in some ways, President Trump has tapped into that residual skepticism in the American psyche. And so that's somewhat troubling, for me at least, because I firmly believe that the United States has played such a constructive role in in global affairs. But if you're looking for a source of optimism, I, I think it's this. If you look at opinion polling 
on what Americans think regarding foreign policy, support for what I would consider to be the key pillars of American internationalism is in some ways at an all-time high. Americans, if you look at what the polls say, they love alliances. They love free trade. Support for free trade and globalization is as robust as it has ever been. And so there are some partisan cleavages there. There's more polarization on these issues than there used to be, and that's concerning. But it doesn't appear that Americans have decided simply to throw away the leadership role that the United States has played. And so that makes me more more hopeful for the future, because I think if we can return to a more constructive form of, of political leadership, there's still support there for our constructive form of global leadership. Yeah, I think the divide is about the use of American armed forces. I, yeah. I think that his most popular applause line in the race four years ago was his attacks on the Iraq war as being an overreach. And the question is whether you can recognize that there's a feeling of being prudent about the use of American soldiers, but still also be a leader in the world. And I think we have to work that out. But I think I kind of agree with you that Americans want us to lead, but they want us to be careful with the use of American soldiers. I think that's exactly right. And I would simply say that the United States has been in a similar position before. And so it may be hard to remember now, but the Vietnam War was far more divisive and damaging than even the Iraq War was. And for a number of years after the U.S. withdrawal from Vietnam, it looked as though Vietnam might sort of be the undoing of the Cold War consensus in American foreign policy. And so American leaders had to grapple with that. And what gradually emerged over the next decade or so was a strategy that was still quite assertive in pushing back against Soviet influence. But as you say, Robert, was very careful in terms of where the United States would deploy large number of troops on on any sustained basis in combat situations. So just the last question for me is the perception in this conversation, our focus has been on China and then on Europe to some extent, Well, you haven't mentioned the Middle East at all, except in the reference to the Iraq war. In the last couple months, there have been some historic peace treaties Mm -hmm. between Israel and Arab countries. America is energy independent. Iran is still a big problem. Iraq is unstable. But is this quiet in the Middle East? Or maybe I'm misperceiving it. Or this ability of us, of America, to turn its attention to other challenges in other parts of the world. Are we going to be able to continue that? Or will the Middle East come roaring back to the front pages soon? So I think the balance that the United States has to strike is limiting its engagement in the Middle East, but not drawing down that engagement altogether. Because when that happens, if we try to simply get out of the region, what we've learned over time is that the region's problems will metastasize and they will eventually come to threaten us. And then we have to go back in in a bigger way than we would have liked to before. And so in 2011, for instance, the United States decided that it was done with the Iraq war and was not going to leave behind a residual stabilizing force in in Iraq. And of course, in 2014, Iraq very nearly fell apart with the rise of ISIS and the United States had to lead a military intervention that featured dozens of countries and took about three and a half years to root ISIS out of its strongholds in Iraq and Syria. And so all of the things that you said, Robert, about America becoming more independent in an energy sense than it is before, although I think the idea of energy independence is a little bit misleading given that oil prices, for instance, are still set 
on a global marketplace. Israel is increasingly secure, at least from external threats, as you've noted. But the United States still has counterterrorism interests. It still has an interest in the stability of the energy market. It still has an interest in preventing a nuclear Iran or an Iran that becomes the foremost power in, in the region. And so sort of the golden mean we have to seek is addressing those challenges with a sustainable force posture in the region and a sustainable level of engagement in the region, trying to avoid doing too much or too little. And that's a difficult balance to strike, but I don't think it's, it's beyond the United States' ability to do so. I just had one last China question. You know, we've talked a lot about the long-term U.S.-China relationship and struggle and rivalry. I was curious to hear how you think that COVID will change that once the dust settles a little bit. How will that change U.S. posture to China in the long term and, and how should it? Well, in, in the near term, it's certainly having the effect of exacerbating all of the other tensions in the U.S.-China relationship. The downturn in, in that relationship has, has, I think, been obvious for everyone to see over, over the past few months. And so American-China relations are tenser today than they have been at any time since the Cold War, I would imagine. And in fact, COVID seems to have led to an uptick in Chinese assertiveness in a variety of of areas, whether it's because the Communist Party feels threatened domestically or because it perceives the United States and the West to be distracted. We've seen China pushing on, on a really astounding number of fronts simultaneously or nearly simultaneously in the South China Sea, in Taiwan, in Hong Kong, in its diplomacy with Europe, along the Indian border, for instance. And so I I think this has sort of confirmed for a lot of people that the U.S.-China competition is real and it's here to stay. If there is a more constructive effect to come out of COVID, I think it's twofold. One is that COVID has been the event that really seems to have convinced most Americans of the threat that China poses. There are now bipartisan majorities of Americans who believe that the United States should be following a competitive posture vis-a-vis China, that it should be trying to strengthen its alliances in the Indo-Pacific region, and so on and, and so forth. And that seems to have corresponded quite closely to the emergence of, of COVID. And I think COVID, what it indicated to many Americans, was that the way that the Chinese Communist Party runs that society can, in fact, present a danger to the health and economic well-being of Americans. I think the second constructive effect, one that hasn't been translated into policy yet, but could be, is a reminder that the United States will have to do more with other democracies if it is going to successfully balance the challenge that China poses. China, after all, is a country of 1.4 billion people. It has a scale, economic and human, far beyond anything the United States has ever faced in a competitor before. And so the task will be far easier, whether it comes to establishing more secure supply chains or simply dealing with China's diplomatic influence, if the United States is able to do that in the company of its democratic friends, not just in the Asia Pacific, but in Europe as well. So you got to hand it to Hal. He's found a silver lining Might in the COVID crisis. Might be our most optimistic <laughs> interview and yet. I, I don't say that facetiously. You can learn some things from adversity that make you stronger. Well, thank you for having me. It was my pleasure. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org. Before we wrap up this episode, we want to make sure that you hear a message from one of our great colleagues here at AEI about an exciting opportunity to get more involved with our work. 
Hello, I'm Christopher Scalia, Director of Academic Programs at AEI, and I'd like to tell you about AEI's Summer Honors Program. The Summer Honors Program is an immersive, week-long learning experience in which exceptional undergraduates of all political stripes study policy with AEI scholars, enjoy wide-ranging expert panel discussions, and learn about policy career opportunities. Additionally, a small cohort of students will be accepted to a more intensive, month-long opportunity. This year, we're offering 16 courses that explore foreign and defense policy, economics, the law, education, healthcare, and more. Our instructors include some of AEI's most renowned scholars, as well as distinguished college professors. Did I mention that the program is fully funded? We cover travel costs, provide lodging and meals, and offer a stipend. So if you're an undergraduate who's eager to study policy with renowned experts and to engage in substantive conversations with other students, or if you know someone who fits that bill, I encourage you to learn more about this opportunity and take a look at our full list of courses and instructors by visiting our website. Just Google AEI Summer Honors Program. But don't delay. The early decision deadline is January 4th, and the final deadline for applications is March 1st.